0: the new indian we have dr Subhash kak an indian american computer scientist a philosopher a historian and a mathematician in other words a polymath he's also a recipient of india's fourth highest civilian award that is padma shri for his contributions to maths philosophy computer science and astronomy of ancient india welcome to the virtual episode of reason dr kark i'm going to begin this conversation with you dr Kak, on a very simple question i think you've been asked this question several times but i'm going to repeat it for the sake of our audience you've been working on computers a lot so my question is what is consciousness And is it possible for scientists to create and manufacture computers with consciousness?
1: Uh, This uh, topic has become extremely important now because uh, we live in the age of AI and uh, there are many people who believe that computers will eventually become consciousness. So then, uh, in order to see what needs to be done for this to happen, we have to know what consciousness is. Now, consciousness is not a thing, it is a certain uh, property uh, associated with our experience. And therefore, from the scientific perspective, to deal with it uh, is uh, not as easy as one uh, imagines. Nevertheless, it is now center stage in science and uh, generally accepted that it is the frontier of all of science. Uh,
0: Dr. Kark. If consciousness is connected to all the aspects of life, is it possible that it is connected with genetics as well? Can you explain it?
1: Um, Well, first, uh, computers are not conscious machines while the brain machine is conscious. Now, the brain machine, of course, uh, is created by our genes. And so are we nothing but... Uh, an expression of um, how the genes uh, create the whole architecture of the body and the brain. Well, it so turns out that uh, it's not just the genes by themselves, just the DNA, it's how the genes express themselves, and that depends on a variety of things on the uh, environment as also. Uh, what goes on in the mind. So there is a connection between mind and body and it is of relevance to so many different fields, including uh, modern medicine. And uh, especially uh, because uh, modern medicine is facing what is called uh, the crisis of reproducibility. A lot of the research cannot be reproduced and that's because uh, the research just does not normally take into account uh, the role that the mind plays, uh, plays in the wellness of the individual.
0: Does language have any role in shaping the neurology of humans? Uh, Dr. Kak, is it also possible that languages could be creating different cultures and different consciousnesses?
1: Animals are also conscious, but animals lack um, rich language like humans have. And uh, our mind rehearses a lot of stuff using language. And because of this, uh, our uh, consciousness uh, is influenced by the language that we use. And uh, therefore, uh, one could uh, say that Uh, languages or cultures have an influence on consciousness. For example, the Chinese language is uh, a kind of a sign. It's not a uh, language which uh, converts, or it's not a, a script which converts directly into sound, and that's why you can have hundreds of languages in China, and it does have many, many different languages, but they use the same signs, and that offers a certain uh, uniformity to the culture, however, um, this also uh, makes the Chinese look at reality in a way which is different from um, those uh, cultures where languages are inflected like uh, Indian languages. And so there is a relationship and there, this, this is uh, well uh, recognized in psycholinguistics, although it's a contested uh, field and uh, there is a whole spectrum of opinions on how exactly this thing functions.
0: Dr. Kak, can we say that, that uh, there is Sanskrit or Kashmiri or Bengali or Tamil or for that matter, a broader Indian consciousness. Would it be correct to say that there's something called Indian consciousness?
1: I would say yes. And that's because um, the Indian subcontinent has had tremendous interaction within, across uh, the languages spoken by the people and the uh, literary language or the language of philosophy uh, namely Sanskrit, and we have uh, huge amounts of texts, uh, more than in any other cultural area. And uh, it uh, there is a certain uh, commonality uh, to all of this, and this commonality can be traced to uh, the belief, for example, in uh, that we are more than just bodies. Uh, I think this is what... Uh, uh, makes uh, the Indian cultural area unique and different from other cultural areas. In other cultural areas uh, like, uh, of Yo- like that of Europe or the Ar- uh, Arabian um, civilizational area, you have bodies and you also have soul, but uh, the soul is, uh, in, in the religious understanding, the soul uh, sort of uh, resides in the body and uh, body itself uh, is to be viewed uh, completely uh, as something which is controlled by by this inner agent in uh, modern science uh, on the other hand you are primarily just the body because the mind is a uh, is something that emerges uh, on the brain and and this is different from the indian um, uh, consciousness area where uh, the Ishvara and the and the body, the Ishwara is the enjoyer within, or let's uh, put it somewhat differently in modern terms. You have the body, you have the mind, and you have consciousness. Uh, the mind in contrast to the other uh, civilizational areas is only an instrument. In other civilizational areas, mind is an agent, for example, in the Western uh, tradition. So here mind is only an instrument because the true agent is, the, is consciousness itself uh, as it gets reflected in the mind. So what it does, and this is something that's been embraced in all corners of India. And it's also a part of uh, uh, the Buddhist experience. And therefore, this was the dominant uh, view to uh, relating with the world uh, in most of Asia and in uh, Central Asia as well because we do know that uh, Sanskrit uh, uh, influenced Central Asia greatly. In fact, uh, also the Slavic world. In fact, uh, now it's been discovered because uh, the Slavs converted to Christianity rather late uh, after 1000... uh, A.D. or so, and it was a very slow and protracted protracted, uh, uh, contest. But uh, now we know that the chief divinity of the Slavs was a four-faced divinity and seems to to have been borrowed from the idea of Shiva, for example. Shiva is supposed to have five faces, but uh, fifth is uh, facing upwards. And these four faces of this divinity That the Slavs call Shvetovid. Shvetovid has a beautiful Sanskrit uh, etymology of uh, Vid meaning knower. Shveta is white, or it it can also mean light, the knower of light. And as we know, Shiva as consciousness is also called light or Prakasha. So the four faces of uh, Shvetovid are uh, in the north is Swaroga, which is Swarga. On the west is Parjanya, or Perkunis, In the south is Lada, which in Sanskrit means the earth. Um, Moksha. Well, the north is Moksha, and the east is Svarga. So you find that persistence of Sanskrit, and this is something that's not been um, researched uh, uh, very broadly, uh, although you can uh, read up on it quite easily. In fact, I uh, presented a paper on Shvetovit in a uh, conference of historians in Belarus just a few months ago. And you can read it up uh, on the internet.
0: Dr. Kark, what role has Kashmiri language, Kashmiri Shaivism, Sanskrit language played in shaping up the Indian consciousness? Can we even ask this question?
1: Sanskrit, um, as we have already mentioned, is... uh, quite uh, central to all of the Indian experience, all of the Indian uh, high experience uh, related to the deepest questions in all, all across uh, all regions of India. And In fact, as um, uh, Greater India expanded into Southeast Asia and it was carried there uh, to a great extent by people from the South, maybe from the Tamil country and from um, Odisha and from Telugu and Karnataka or Kannada country, the vehicle was still Sanskrit. So it didn't really matter which uh, region you came from and you find that uh, the ancient Javanese language for example or the Balinese language have a huge element of Sanskrit vocabulary and from there it went up to Champa which is Vietnam and Thailand and Philippines and all the way to uh, to Japan and Korea. There was also a movement from Kashmir and Central Asia again to China, Korea and Japan and according to the University of Pennsylvania Sinologist, uh, well-known scholar Victor Meyer, uh, this was to play a very fundamental role in the shaping of uh, Chinese culture and language and it's been estimated that about 35,000 words of the Chinese language are derived from Sanskrit. This is according to Victor Meyer Um, and of course for about a thousand years all the Sanskrit uh, documents which uh, had all aspects of uh, uh, philosophy and sciences were uh, translated uh, into uh, Chinese and other Asian languages and uh, there was this whole uh, movement, and many of this was much of this was done by uh, by Kashmiri scholars, um, such as Komarajiva, for example, and, and others who followed uh, him. And uh, since you mentioned uh, Kashmiri Shaivism, um, people don't quite realize that um, even Mahayana Buddhism um, worships uh, Shiva, and one of the uh, most uh, popular. Uh, worship which is done in Sanskrit even now in China, Japan and all those countries is called dharani Nilakanta, as we know, is the name for uh, Shiva, uh, the one, the blue-throated one. And this, in fact, is a worship by Avalokiteshvara, who is uh, one perfected Bodhisattva. And in fact, uh, the feminine form of Avalokiteshvara is uh, represented in images uh, all across uh, East Asia. So in this uh, worship, in Sanskrit even now, Avalokiteshvara himself is worshipping Shiva uh, as Nilakantha, as the most compassionate being because Shiva swallows the halahal poison which emerges at Samudramanthan. Uh, and, uh, protects the whole universe because if uh, the poison had spilled on the universe the universe would have been destroyed now of course we are not to take all of this as literal truth Uh, these are symbolic expressions but we see tremendous uh, uh, influence uh, on uh, on uh, on all of Asia uh, and uh, the fact that Shiva is still worshipped, and Vishnu as well, by the Buddhists is not broadly known. In fact, this division between Buddhism and um, and uh, Sanatan Dharma is is to a great extent a creation of um, modern academic uh, Buddhologists or uh, scholars who were sort of motivated by seeing these two as two different currents. But as the great uh, uh, scholar of Indian culture, art and civilization, Ananda Kumaraswamy, in his book, Hinduism and Buddhism uh, said, the more, the deeper you go into the study of uh, these, you realize that uh, there is really uh, no difference. So all of this does belong to what is uh, recognized as uh, Indian consciousness.
0: Now, let me ask you a different question altogether because it seems that we are getting into areas of debate where there's the danger of uh, being labeled as pseudoscience. In fact, India has been accused of forgetting the distinction between science and pseudoscience, myth and reality, myth and science, is there a danger of intertwining science and mythology here? Uh,
1: before uh, religions uh, that emerged um, with uh, uh, Christianity and uh, uh, subsequent to that, uh, the religion as understood uh, was uh, a relationship uh, with nature and with uh, perceived reality. For example, the old uh, Greek religion, I'm talking here of uh, the West, or the Roman religion, or uh, uh, religion, Slavic religion, or even the ancient uh, Arabic religion, which is not very different. And in fact, you have contemporary scholars speaking of how these images uh, represented uh, fundamental truths so religion from the Latin religio, what binds uh, where it's a kind of a social phenomenon is something which uh, uh, is true perhaps of Judaism, Christianity and Islam is not true uh, to the same extent uh, of, uh, of, of Hinduism uh, or Sanatan Dharma because Sanatan Dharma is really uh, is not about confession of a certain belief. It's about uh, knowledge uh, which um, whose understanding changes as uh, we grow up or as um, our relationship with uh, reality deepens. So it's more about what we do than what we believe in because after all what we believe in is something Is is always a mystery because there is no simplicity of this because reality in itself is enigmatic, uh, is paradoxical. Um, And uh, this is something that is uh, very well recognized uh, uh, in the entire Vedic tradition. For example, the famous Isha Vasya Upanishad speaks about um, these poles, um, Vidya and Avidya, materiality and spirit. And... uh, and life is uh, da- is a dance like shiva's dance between one between these two poles between living and death for example between transition transformation and and life so uh, so i think the recognition that uh, the western scientific understanding of reality was limited became very clear with quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics, as we know, is the deepest uh, theory that we have in science and it's at the basis of all the great uh, stuff that science and technology has done in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, you cannot have IC and ICs on computers and modern communication without knowledge of uh, quantum mechanics. Now, people don't quite know that The very founder of quantum mechanics, one of the two founders of quantum mechanics, Erwin Schrodinger, was a Vedantin. He was Austrian, but he was a Vedantin. And in his own autobiography, he credits inspiration that he obtained from Upanishadic thought in arriving at the central notion of quantum mechanics. So to answer your question, Uh, This line between science and religion is a line between knowledge and sociology of power. And that is a separate issue altogether. I think it's not of relevance to the Indian civilizational area, because in the Indian civilizational area, uh, there could be many different schools that one uh, would uh, be connected with uh, or choose one amongst these uh, for one's life, but uh, the important thing was knowledge. India has always been a knowledge-centric civilization and as the West, the rest of the world also uh, moves towards this objective, you will see that the West will increasingly adopt all of this and as we see this for example in uh, the popularity of yoga. Yoga is sweeping the entire globe. You go to the smallest um, corners uh, in towns and villages in Europe or South America or Russia or China, certainly the big cities. You will find yoga studios, you'll find people doing yoga, even in Saudi Arabia. Women and others are doing yoga in a big way. And I was at this big conference a few years ago where there was also a lady from Iran. Iranian women are also doing yoga. Now, what is yoga? Yoga is uh, the technology of self-knowledge. Yoga is Hinduism in practice. If you look at the the two great texts of yoga are the Bhagavad Gita, which is the central text of Hinduism. In fact, Bhagavad Gita speaks of yoga of different kinds. You do do not only have Hatha Yoga, which is physical asanas, because that is only preparation of the body. All of that you do, Jnana Yoga or Raja Yoga or Karma Yoga, Raya Yoga. There are various different kinds of yoga you can do, which bring you to consciousness within you and this consciousness is what is called Shiva in Kashmir Shaivism. Let me also say that uh, uh, Kashmir Shaivism is one um, expression of Vedanta. The very heart of Vedas is what Vedanta is or the end of Vedas or the essence of Vedas. So uh, you have Shankara's uh, Vedanta. Which speaks of um, of um, of um, how you could look at uh, jagat as mithya or as uh, as illusion um, and reality being Brahman, which is consciousness. But it now Kashmir Shaivism says that this universe, physical reality, is also a embodiment of uh, consciousness. So it's Shiva embodied. And therefore, there is a slight difference of focus because uh, you can also say that that idea of illusion is only to emphasize the transitory nature of physical reality, which is certainly true. And uh, and so these are two different uh, forms of uh, Vedanta, and there are a few others, where in Kashmir Shaivism, we also embrace uh, reality as it is, our bodiness, so to speak, as it is. Uh, while in the southern uh, tradition of Shankara, uh, there is more emphasis of uh, or focus on on the journeying itself, on journey towards knowledge.
0: So my question is: Is it possible to really draw neat lines between science and philosophy? because a lot of what you really say is both philosophy and science.
1: So uh, we, we cannot in the, uh, in the Indian uh, tradition of uh, consciousness, we do not make a distinction between science and philosophy. Uh, philosophy is just the interpretive uh, uh, mechanism that we have to understand science and as is true of modern science as well, you have quantum mechanics and then you have uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics which are philosophical and there can be a lot of debate amongst uh, these interpretations. Likewise, you have the various darshanas within the Vedic thought and these darshanas look at different aspects of reality um, through logic or through yoga or through tattvas which is sankhya or through traditional ritual or traditional categories and Vedanta itself. And you can have others and certainly Kashmir Shaivism with its focus on consciousness is one of those.
0: Why should younger generations study ancient texts or Indian scriptures? What exactly can they gain from it when we hardly have any jobs related to ancient texts? Why is it necessary?
1: Indian knowledge tradition is of extraordinary richness. Um, Indian texts are more than, and I'm talking of Sanskrit texts alone, are more than the texts available in all the other world languages combined. And many of them have not been translated. India is not just about religion and bhakti. India is about sciences, all kinds of sciences. Um, from uh, from uh, you know logic to physics to medicine uh, ayurveda to animal things through ge- geology or, or what have you and certainly other uh, sciences where um, where architecture art and all that uh, comes in so uh, what, what happened very unfortunately um, with the coming of the British, the British sort of shut down Indian traditional system of education, uh, which were and other schools that existed. And uh, so Indians pr- um, slowly over the years, over the uh, generations, became separated and alienated or strangers to their own tradition. And this is of extraordinary richness and a large focus or part of it is consciousness, which is the frontier of modern science also. And in order to make further advances, I believe um, Indian um, insights would still be useful, not just for those who are interested in philosophy or their personal spiritual growth, but also to scientists as well. In fact, my own research Uh, has benefited a lot because I do work in all of these fields. I do work on consciousness and quantum mechanics and all that and it has uh, benefited from my understanding of uh, the Indian tradition on this.
0: I'm going to repeat this question because I think uh, any young person watching this video would ask, what does it matter? What history was? what india was 5000 years ago or what our scriptures said 5000 years ago and they might turn around and ask that how is it relevant to them today why should they be interested in this to begin with uh,
1: we are in the ai age and beyond ai comes consciousness i think uh, for us to uh, be ready to um, deal with the complexities that the AI age is going to bring to all of us because these complexities would be related to the fact that a lot of that many jobs uh, for which routine work is required will be done by machines in the future. So new kinds of jobs or professions or um, disciplines will have to be created and they will be created by those who are in touch Uh, with the subtleties of the working of consciousness. So I think India will be ahead if we get connected to our own tradition and it's ultimately a universal tradition. It doesn't uh, distinguish between person and person, male and female um, or whatever uh, preference, gender preference you might have or which region, region of the world you come from and what your personal Uh, aesthetics is or what your personal belief is. It is a tradition of uh, of expansion of the mind, a tradition uh, of relating uh, oneself to the deepest mystery uh, which uh, asks questions as to who we are. Just to step back and see how important all this is, note that the U.S., which is the richest nation that has ever been Um, and and not only because of its recent history but also because uh, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. America sucks up the wealth of a lot of the other lands also. So in this rich country where people live in these beautiful houses, 100,000 people last year died of opioid, or drug overdose. Why are people dying of uh, drug overdose? Because people are extremely unhappy. They're extremely unhappy because even if you're living in the best houses, you're a good-looking person, you're you're a success, but you're still unhappy that you're nothing but the body because that's what the mainstream media and the school system, that's the paradigm within which the Western tradition operates. And in my view, as a scientist and as a uh, scholar of history and uh, the Indian tradition, I would say that that paradigm is limited and wrong. And it's being uh, slowly replaced by one where consciousness is central to our understanding of reality. Because just imagine, we don't go to all these planets and stars and, um, and, and galaxies which lie beyond our own solar system all of this experience exists in our consciousness. Consciousness is central reality and everything else and of course that doesn't mean that there is nothing but consciousness. There is also this physical reality. There is these two body and consciousness which in the Vedic tradition was called Vidya and Avidya. Vidya is consciousness, Avidya is materiality and the Vedas uh, recognized that uh, there are uh, two kinds of uh, knowledge. One is uh, Aparavidya and Paravidya. Aparavidya is the language, is the knowledge associated with things that go through transitions, uh, which is materiality, with which for which language is an important component for understanding, which are the normal subjects that we study in school and college. And Paravidya is the knowledge, uh, uh, of consciousness. And in fact, uh, what the Vedas says is that you must do Aparavidya to sharpen your mind so that you can then do Paravidya. And Paravidya would set you free. Um, and I, I think it's, it's totally wonderful in so many different ways. And I do wish and hope that uh, more people. And doesn't really matter what your background is. Everybody is equal. Then each individual is the same Purush. Purush is embodiment of consciousness within each individual. In fact, in Kashmir Shaivism, you have this great uh, slogan, Shivoham, Aham Shiva, I am Shiva. Every human being is fundamentally, if they were to throw off the scales of, uh, of ignorance, uh, created out of habit and conditioning and uh, and, and forgetting, uh, so to speak, forgetting our true self, uh, one would find immeasurable abilities and creativity within oneself. And that's true of every individual.
0: That has been absolutely one of the most fascinating conversations I have ever had on philosophy and science and the future of philosophy and science together. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Kark.
1: Thank you, uh, RTG. ji. Uh, it was wonderful chatting with you.
0: We will come back with another episode of Reason very soon. Thank you.